Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell, and this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of January 23rd, 2023. Hey Mike, so the one article I wanna you know jump on first was something I saw on the Daily Dot, and it was just kind of interesting because it was information and exposure. But it was exclusive. U.S. airline accidentally exposes no-fly list on unsecured server. So basically, uh, there was a security researcher that found this. But how they found it was, you know, interesting because it's kind of the typical way we know, you know, threat actors find things is they were using Shodan to look for Jenkins servers. And if you're not familiar with Jenkins, it's used to help automate things. Yep. And I guess on this server that was publicly exposed because they're looking for specifically publicly exposed servers. They found this file, which is a CSV that had no fly lists. I think it had like almost a million um, or, or 1.9 million entries, you know, mm-hmm. with names and aliases and birth dates. Um, but there were also some other things that they didn't, you know, you know, mention as a highlight of the article. But there were credentials to S3 buckets and some of the user data. So it's one of those things where it's really good thing to use you know, attack like tools or tools that are common to attackers to assess yourself. Like I know we kind of outsource that sometimes and let a third party kind of do these assessments, but there's no reason why we couldn't routinely do that. Cause when you outsource things, typically it's like a one and done, maybe quarterly at, at best. This is something that I think people need to stay up on. And this is just a great example of that, right? Absolutely. Um, very interesting article. I think they said the data was back from 2019. So they tried to, Kind of protect themselves a little bit, but I think they said that they had found 40 exposed buckets on AWS. Um, and yeah. I know, I know, that's a huge, huge risk for a lot of organizations, right? Um, there's, there's a lot of dollars behind protecting those cloud resources. Anytime you deploy a bucket, having the permissions and the policies, policies in place to be able to protect yourself, but I mean, there's a wealth of information out there. I think we actually posted internally this website called buckets.grayhatwarfare.com. Really interesting tool. Again, it just scans the internet for open buckets. You can look by file type, by keywords, searches across Azure, Google, AWS, DigitalOcean. This is a great place to your point to go punch in your, your company's domain or if you have some sort of nomenclature of how you uh, save secure files or company information. Go look that stuff up, right? It doesn't take that long. There's probably some ways you can automate this, but it just goes into the same thing that attackers are doing. You should probably do yourself, right? And it's it's adapting some of that tradecraft internally to protect yourself against these situations. Um, it's yeah. the damage control. I mean, again, it'll probably not hear anything about it in a week or two, but the exposure to the end user, the names, the birth dates, I think one of the ones had passport numbers and a lot of other personal identifier information. Um, that's a big risk. This should be, people should be yelling and screaming about this, but again, it'll probably fly under the radar unless 
a CNN or a Fox News or somebody big picks it up. So that's a struggle with cybersecurity. We've talked about that internally, like the the idea of threat hunting when it comes to profiling, right? Like kind of knowing yourself and how do you hunt to know your basic behaviors and exposure and things like that in your internal environment. Yep, that's right. So yes. before we before we jump to yours, I just want to make mention, since we're kind of talking about some of the threat hunting stuff in general, we do have a workshop coming up. Uh, it talks and discusses about credential access, and it's going to be led by Lee Arkinall, who's done those a great job in the past, and it's going to be a hands-on you know, get get your hands on some data, do some hunts alongside Lee Arkinall, then try to go for kind of the capture the flag hunt that will get you our certified badge that you can post everywhere to say that you've actually done these types of hunting techniques in general uh, on your social media where you share that kind of stuff. So it's a really great opportunity for people that are new to threat hunting or want to polish up on some of these specific techniques or just, you know, really just have fun being technical and actually getting their hands on things versus other types of trainings that people typically offer. So people should yep. definitely check that out. Yeah, we're excited about that one. Uh, and again, there's all the information will be available on the website. You can get access to the files, the tools, the OVA. Um, so uh, come prepared to hunt. Absolutely. So what do you got? Yeah, so we'll start off with a fun one. Everybody's been talking about AI, machine learning, chat GPT recently. I think there's some... Uh, some marketing and messaging out there that this is going to, I mean, eventually will change kind of how we operate, but I think people are now using it as a way to get eyes on their websites and, and some buzz around what they want to talk about. So this is an article from Gizmodo talking about how ChatGPT is creating polymorphic malware and viruses, right? So it's a, you know, big red image, you know, you know, AI is creating malware, we're all doomed type of article. Um, but once you dig in and talk about a little bit what ChatGPT does. It basically scrapes the open internet for, in this case, open source and exposed code on generating malware. It takes that and it kind of builds based on those prompts that you give it. And it'll create kind of a new malware strain or structure. But a lot of this data isn't, it's not coming up with this. It's, it's based on things that's scraped in the past. This article is talking about polymorphic malware, which is basically that from a heuristic standpoint, the hash value, what it does, some of the signatures will change because it's creating a new malware every time. So once it's compiled, it's going to be different. And so they're calling this out like this is going to, you know, sound the alarm that this malware is going to go undetected. But this is a great transition into, look, if you're hunting the right way and you're not hunting off heuristics and hash values, the behaviors aren't going to really change, right? These are known behaviors in the wild. These are things that you can hunt from a advanced behavior TTP perspective. So while this is really cool and it is doing some really interesting things, this isn't kind of the world is doomed that AI is going to create all this very complex malware. So kind of at a high level and, and Scott, I'll let you dive into it. Yeah. So I'm glad you kind of had that approach because when you share this article with me, I was like, oh, I wonder how you're going to read this. Right. And I, I read it very much the same way. Kind of like it's more of the doom and gloom. And, and we actually had someone internal post great YouTube video that I loved. I watched the whole thing and it's with Marcus Hutchins and the YouTube video is called can chat GPT write malware better than me. Okay. And what was great about that was he kind of summed up kind of the, the approach people are taking is, Hey, he was challenging chat GPT to my write malware for them. And it did come up with good snippets of code, 
But to be a really good malware author, you have to know how to put those things together. So honestly, when you have security people looking at this, they can say, oh my gosh, because they recognize what they're looking at. They, they understand what they're looking at. But if you have someone with no background, it's going to be very, very hard for them to take that and actually operationalize or put it together properly in the right order. Because ChatGPT, you know, I mean, it's kind of making a lot of assumptions. And that's why a lot of the malware he even commented on, you see Python examples. But Python yep. doesn't run natively unless you have the interpreter installed. So if you're trying to actually write malware for endpoint systems, you can't, you got to have a way to convert that. And it doesn't do that very well. Uh, so, you know, I think that was the best way to kind of wrap your head around what's the real risk. It's, it could be a tool to help and educate people that are least already familiar, but there's nothing that would, I think make it to where anyone can create malware and do a full kind of campaign and set up all the infrastructure properly to manage it and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, yeah. And that's, what's frustrating about this article, right? They say that it's going to make it easier for script kitties to start to deploy malware. No. Like there's a lot more that goes into the deployment of this kind of stuff, the compiling, the command and control. The mm -hmm. It's frustrating that, again, we're going to start seeing these articles pop up. It's just about um, being able to, to pull out the context and kind of understand what they're really talking about. And they quoted CrowdStrike in this article. The CrowdStrike probably said way more about what the situation was. They just decided not to put it in the article, right? So I think we're at the kind of inflection point now where we really need to start to take a look at what these articles are saying, read into them, and not make those overall conclusions that we're about to turn into Skynet or something, so. I mean, it's, I think it's that shock value, right? People see a tool that can actually create something that may be useful, yeah. but as far as the complexity and how things actually work, they're not really focused on that. I mean, I think, even I'm in awe sometimes in the things I see, and I feel like, right. you know, kind of getting caught up in that, you gotta kind of control your emotions and actually start thinking about what's the real risk and, you know, what, until we actually, I mean, if it's so easy, why have we not seen attacks that have been driven by chat GPT yet, right? We hear about it, but I've, I've, you know, we look for attacks all the time. And so far, I haven't seen where chat GPT specific malware um, that people can tie back to that. Maybe it's probably hard to prove, but either way. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, you ready for me to jump for my next one? Yep, let's get it. All right. So the, this was another great source of reporting and we've talked about it numerous times so we probably will talk about it every time it comes up but it's one of the deeper reports and this one's interesting it's uh let me get to the title here it's ShareFinder: how threat actors discover file shares so typically in defer reports they always kind of hit on a full-fledged attack from start to finish I provide all the technical detail uh, in this case they kind of just focused on this technique a common tool that they've seen across multiple reports uh, from attacks they've seen. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting because, you know, they dialed in on one thing, kind of broke it apart. And basically what it is, is a PowerShell type uh, script that was originally part of PowerView or the module of PowerSploit framework. It's kind of an offensive framework in PowerShell, but it looks for basically shares. It, you know, the command led is invoke share finder. Um, you can provide some arguments, but they kind of go through the behavior. And the one thing I really want to call out that's always interesting to me is, you know, when people think about discovery in general and even lateral move and authentication type of hunting and detection, the biggest telltale sign to me when I see this is it's always like a one-to-many relationship. And, you know, in your environment, you should kind of be aware with what systems really talk one-to-many, right? Like, 
So there's probably some servers or services and things like that. But when you have an endpoint that's a workstation, it's going to talk one to many things internally. And especially if they're not all, all servers, you know, and there are workstations as well, that in itself uh, kind of is a misbehavior, I think, of most typical endpoints. And so it doesn't even really matter what the activity is. If you're able to group things up that way, you would probably highlight a bunch of interesting things. I remember when we were deploying different types of detections initially, just to kind of prove that concept out. One of the things that used to always fire for those types of rule sets were our vulnerability scanner. I mean, obviously we whitelisted it, but mm -hmm. obviously the vulnerability scanner is doing the same behavior with looking for things, trying things, discovering things. So modeling your vulnerability scanner's behavior to look forward to this discovery is also a great way to come up with detections and hunts and things like that as well. And it's a built-in tool that's going to mimic the same behaviors and generate the data for you. So that was my biggest takeaway. I mean, they have some technical things about what, what kind of you know, looking for the common default shares. You can look look for that. Obviously, you're using port 445 because it's SMB shares. And then they talked about some ICP based traffic activity. It's similar to what I talked about with that one-to-many relationship. But yeah, that was kind of the the wrap-up of that. Yeah, I tried to read through the report. It's I always get like halfway through. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I get the point. Different report always right. comes to amazing articles uh, and a lot of things that you can extrapolate and start to hunt for, like you're like you're saying the one to many. I know a lot of people might take this and use a lot of the you know indicators, right? The ports, the scanning techniques. But to your point, it's really about again contextualizing what this is trying to convey. And mm -hmm. I think the best thing to get out of this is a lot of these. Uh, you know, network sharing behavior that people typically do is if they get access to a machine, they're going to spread out from there and try to look for other machines, right? And try to look for those file sharings across multiple different machines in the environment, whether or not it's, you know, typically done through, you know, domain services. So there's a lot here that you can, can take and hunt for mm -hmm. from those specific behaviors. But yeah, it's, these articles are always great to dive into. And this is a really good one because this is a little bit, this is a higher level technique. It's not talking about a malware or a, right. uh, you know, CVE. This is a generalized technique that I think you can then translate into a hunt methodology or how to hunt, right? And to your point again, this leads into, I need to understand my environment. I need to understand what hosts might do this activity naturally um, right. or what hosts kind of the anomalous activity across the environment. So this should lead to an organization going and doing this exercise that week or that month to really dive in, look at these behaviors. So yeah, another great article, love it. So we'll move on to the next one. This is from Hacker News. This is, ooh, I'm gonna botch the name of this malware. <laughs> Gamerudon, is that? Gamerudon, something like that, I guess, that's my guess too. <laughs> yeah, um, they're again, talking about kind of nation state, hacking, launching cyber attacks against Ukraine using Telegram. So it does get into kind of Russian state-sponsored cyber attacks uh, with a specific group going against Ukraine. We can get into the details of that. I think the really interesting part about this is that they dive into how they're using Telegram as a T2 mechanism. And then they really get into detail around the IP addresses that they're using. Mm -hmm. And they call it out like, oh, you know, it's hard to mitigate or find because they're rotating IP addresses and it's hard to track those. Again, I read this and that's great, but that's not the first method to probably try to detect and mitigate and hunt for this type of activity. Yeah, it's not how I would solve the problem. Right, right. But they go into great detail about how it's hard because they rotate IP addresses. There's a lot more we can kind of 
extrapolate out of this article. Um, uh, but it was, it was interesting. Again, we've seen Telegram and Discord used as that C2 mechanism, the encrypted communication, the APIs available, being able to spin up channels and, you know, do some, some interesting capabilities with those tools. Uh, even if you are rotating those IP addresses and you're trying to track for those ICs, there's other ways you can probably find and hunt for that data and environments that at least give you an indication of the techniques or behaviors that are being used across the board there, um, outside of just blocking Telegram and Discord altogether. Um, so what were your thoughts on this article? So I had a couple of interesting thoughts. One, I, I did love, you know, I focused on the, well, they're dynamically changing their IP so much that it's right. hard to analyze a sample because if it calls out to the wrong place, then, you know, you're not going to be able to see what the follow-on effects were. So, but, I, you know, it was interesting because they're kind of using rudimentary ways to execute things that are pretty common behaviors to look for bad things. And they were mentioning how it fetches a VBA script, which is apparently heavily, heavily obfuscated. And now there's no technical details, you know, shown in this specific article. I'm just going off of my knowledge of looking at these things before. But if you're executing VB script, there's a good chance it's probably like W script or something on the computer that's then running PowerShell, um, yeah. which is then, you know, pulling down to get a PHP file. Um, that behavior just right there, you can easily hunt for because it's just what is, ex I mean, what is executing PowerShell would just be a great run there because, you know, those yeah. typical behaviors don't see that that often in normal operations. So that's one way how I would try to address this problem. The other that I, I've kind of just thought about, and it's obviously they're targeting Ukraine and they're using the Ukrainian IP space to determine whether or not to detonate. Mm -hmm. And and, and this is this comes up all the time, right? Where countries that want to target other countries, they rely on the IP lookup. Um, so I was thinking, if you're a country that's involved in a conflict or active war, what would be the cost um, to potentially proxy out your IP and proxy through something else? So if someone's trying to target you based on your country IP space, they can't because they'd either randomize or put your IP somewhere else. So malware they couldn't use that as a targeting mechanism, you know. I would probably have to go through like at the ISP level, right? Or, um, you well, know. it'd be whatever IP you have at your edge. But I mean, like if I use a private VPN at home and I, depending on, and I can run it from my router, sure. I can, my router will, when I do lookups, my every host behind that thinks it's wherever that router is putting me right at the end of that tunnel. Yeah. And I guess. I don't know. I don't know if they were targeting individuals or are they targeting like government? Well, it was geolocation based, right? So you'd have to throw. Yeah. They might have been going after people at home or not businesses in particular. Right. All right. Yeah. But that, that goes into a larger conversation, like in the act of war, because they're all running through ISPs from the Ukrainian government or you know public sphere. Yeah. How hard would it be for that entity? at the edge to then obfuscate those IP addresses going out. Yeah. And then, I mean, the the bad part is, is that means you might run into like the uh, not Petya type thing where the malware hits globally, right? Versus the intended target. But, you know, if you wanted to really protect yourselves so that, you know, the that malware would have to be, they'd have to put more time to develop their tool sets because they couldn't rely on something that simple. Essentially, you're putting more work on the adversary in that case, which, I just I don't know if the feasible option, but it's an interesting one in my head. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. And then there's other ways that you know you could potentially try to mitigate anybody doing IP address lookups on those mm -hmm. IP addresses using known tools. That's true. 
I've seen some malware, at least from these nation states, that will look up the the language setting on the computers to check, right? To make yeah, sure yeah, yeah. But within that close region, there are some Russian Ukrainians, right? So that's where you get that blend of that probably wouldn't work there. So yeah, no, that's a, be interesting to figure out how to solve that problem. Right. Uh, I feel like that would be a hard, <laughs> hard solution. At the individual level, there might be a package that somebody could deploy or call it Verizon, but in Ukraine that they could put on top of their routers to make that, to mitigate at least their home users. Or, you know, if you're a business, make sure if you have a cloud presence that you have your stuff duplicated to a region that would have IPs that are there, right. Yeah, so if you get hit, maybe all your resources at one location might be taken down, but not other, sure. right? Depending on sure. what the malware is and things like that. So, you know, there's cost behind that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's awesome. Again, it's really cool to kind of break down some of these articles and get into the hidden hidden gems behind these. Right. So we'll, uh, we'll end with a stimulating one. I saw this. <laughs> this is going to be yeah, exciting. So, um, <laughs> This one, it's just something I came across and, you know, I'm always interested when the National Security Agency publishes things. And one of the things being in IT for so long that I've always kind of fretted over is when we try to jump to IPv6 and move off IPv4, what does that look like? What's the adoption going to be? Because we've been talking about that for like over a decade, right? So, you know, as a security professional, it's one of those things where, you know, if it's done wrong, there's going to be exposure potentially, right? So this is where it's good to know they give, they basically produced a whole cybersecurity information sheet is what they call it, but it's all these kind of best practices for what you should be concerned about, what you should do, things to know about from IPv6. So it gives you a great starting point for things to start researching, get yourself familiar with, and like some keywords and things. They also cite all their works at the bottom where they kind of made some of these references. So there might be really good documentation there to help dig even deeper. Um, which I think is great. But this also brings, you know, for me, this is a big threat hunting topic because if they're putting this out there, that means they're really planning people to be adopting IPv6 and they see the risk. Well, obviously, as a security person, you might not be in control of all the architecture and all the networking that's going on in your environment. And if a risk is introduced and it's unknown, so it might not get solved and something gets taken advantage of, uh, threat hunting is the place to be for all that post-exploitation discovery. So maybe there was a poor architecture design. Well, one of the ways, and maybe even in the way it was designed, there's not really good monitoring. That's one of the biggest risks, I think, in IPv6 is people not setting up their monitoring properly for IPv6-based things. Uh, so in this capacity, if you're able to threat hunt for things of, that may have compromised you that went under the radar or had an easy path in, uh, that's a great opportunity to show success and value with threat hunting. And, and then you can walk those things back, hopefully, far enough to understand where the risk is and then get that addressed as well. So, yeah. And I, I'll have to look at this. I don't know if AWS is already doing that with um, the cloud services. If you spin up services in the cloud environments that they kind of dual home IPv4 and IPv6 already, I can imagine as organizations are trying to transfer off. And I think this affects the edge more than internal systems right now because, I mean, yeah. If your internal environment is hitting that threshold for IPv4 addresses, like that's a whole other headache. But at the edge, I can imagine as you're transitioning over from v4 to v6, uh, leaving ports open, ports being closed on those new addresses, like that transition is going to be a again a headache for engineers. So that'd be the thing that I think a lot of these organizations need to look out for. And then just from a IOC perspective, like. I can't imagine these engineers being able to remember IPv6 addresses. Anymore, oh, I know. Right? Like, 
we could probably rattle off and and uh an octet pretty quickly if we know what those edge addresses are so you're going to have you're really going to have to have asset tracking down eventually because you're not going to be able to remember those subnets and you know those addresses across those different subnets so you bring up a, a really good point too when it comes to iocs you know there already are a significantly smaller subset of ipv4 addresses so and you don't block a lot of them but you can block a decent amount of them depending mm -hmm. on what you want to block and look at the volume of ip6 addresses similar to that of hashes and you can't oh, right. block every hash and no tool right now can support that considerable amount of volume and with ipv6 you can have you know, one device can have six IPv6 addresses addresses for yep. different things, for local stuff, for network-based yep. stuff, or you know, peer sharing stuff, whatever. Um, so there leaves another challenge where if you find something bad, how many IPv6 addresses would you have to block in order to stop that type of attack or even like a distributed attack? I and mean, that's really, really tough when you think mm -hmm. about volume to that regard. So, you know, once again, it's gives you some advantages to, to hunt for the for the actual behavior yeah. and activity. I have no idea even what a range of IPv6 addresses looks like, right? Because like that, that could get massive and the ability to spin up just an unheard of different IPv6 addresses. If you're going to, if you're talking about like a DDoS attack or you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, using T2s and rotating off those addresses. Yeah, it becomes an issue on the tool side as well, right? So a firewall block lists, like you're talking about, a switch having you know uh um, ip table lists or something mm -hmm. like that like it's going to get exponentially harder to, to implement a lot of that and i'm sure you could do subnet blocking but and then what's the risk when you subnet block and there's one address that is business critical in there you know yeah. like there's probably a, a, a higher chance of that too potentially so you know it's just those things that scare me about handling <laughs> threats with ipv6 yeah. I mean, I could, this is, seems like it's a great idea. I don't see this being fully implemented in the next five years, maybe 10 years. I don't know. But uh, the amount of edge-based services out there that would have to transition off from a DNS perspective as well. Uh, think about all the DNS entries that are going to get screwed up. And they talk about it in the article, but that's a yeah. whole lot of Well, I do know. So Cellular uses IPv6, right? And uh, think, Yeah, I think they've started to transition off. So, you know, I feel like one of the things from a security perspective, like infrastructure people or people that secure companies that provide infrastructure, they'll probably want to, you know, pay closer attention to these types of things, uh, especially because I think you're right. I think you'll see it more on the infrastructure side than you will, you know, at the core business side. Yep. But yeah. Awesome. Yeah. No, I think that's it for the five to this week. Sweet. So. Just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Looking forward to syncing back again next week to talk about some additional things that we we uncover throughout the week or the beginning of next week. So with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of January 23rd, 2023. Happy hunting. All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.